So much of 2020 has been about divisions. Divisions about the pandemic, policing, politics, race. But what do alliances look like? What does it mean for groups often depicted as divided to come together? Can the collective trauma of Black people, Asians, and Blasians allow them to come together? Hello, I'm your host, Ima Sandu, and you're listening to We The Many, a podcast that features Black, Asian, and Blasian perspectives on prominent issues affecting our communities. This is our first episode, so please bear with us as we smooth things out. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Jonathan Gibbs, the creator of Ban, and three other members, Toby Muftau Lady Ju, Jimmy Zhu, and John Edwards, about their experiences in this group. Hey, everyone. I'm Jimmy. Pronouns are he, his. I'm an ABC, which stands for American-born Chinese, who is now living in the California Bay Area. I'm a software engineer during the day, but my greatest passion is martial arts, and that largely occupies all of my time outside of work. Hey, my name is Toby. Nice to meet you all. You're hearing me for the first time. (laughs) I'm 29. I'm an African-American woman. I go by the pronouns she and her. I grew up in a very Nigerian household. I am really proud of that African part of my American identity. Hello, my name is John Edwards. I'm a cisgendered gay man. My ethnicities are half Nepali and half African American, which would make me Blasian. (laughs) I'm 24 and I'm a student currently studying psychology. So what exactly is BAN, or the Black Asian Alliance Network, and why was it created? BAN is a Facebook group, but it is so much more than that. It is actually an idea, an experiment to unite Black communities with Asian communities so that we see each other, so that we recognize each other in this crazy time, and we move forward together. That was Jonathan Gibbs. His motivations for creating this space is why I joined myself to find a group of people looking for unity over division. Jonathan's story is inspiring. Let's hear what he has to say. I am the creator and founder of the Black and Asian Alliance Network, or BAN for short. Being Black and Filipino, I guess I kind of just get it. I'm very much aware of what it means to be Black in the U.S., that history. I was something like six or seven when Rodney King happened. At the same time, I've seen Asian folks get picked on. I've seen them get bullied. I've seen them relegated to some lesser than trope or role in society all my life, not just in 2020. Living at that intersection of these two communities, I guess I it, it, it has prepared me like for this. And I mean, I guess 2020 was kind of the stars aligning for the struggles that both communities face, right? On one hand, you had the uptick of reporting on Asian people getting attacked. And then on the other hand, you had the murder of George Floyd, which sparked a whole new wave of care and concern for the Black Lives Matter movement. But again, these things had always been happening to both of the communities, right? Asians had always been bullied, and Black people had endured the worst kind of treatment in this country since its inception. Nothing has changed about that. So I wanted to make a space where we could be real, 
where we could acknowledge the pain and struggle of both communities, minus the performance, minus the idea that any of this was new information, a place to share, learn, grow, and move forward together. So the first places that I went to find members were the comment section of popular Asian Facebook groups, specifically comment sections where some Asian people were expressing anti-Black sentiments and folks were fighting back against them. I would type up little posts like, hey, Asian folks, if you're tired of dealing with anti-Black sentiments from other Asian folks, come join this group. I also went to specifically Black groups and advertised in kind of the same way. I'd be like, hey, if you're seeing what's going on with anti-Asian violence and you really care and you want to do something about it, then join this group. Jonathan Gibbs speaks to some critical moments that led to the creation of BAN, but he wasn't alone. Others across the nation were deeply impacted by the events of the past year as well. In particular, one moment that seemed to make our world stop. On May 25th, 2020, in the depths of a pandemic, a black man in South Minneapolis named George Floyd was handcuffed and held down by three officers. The senior officer on the scene, Derek Chauvin, placed his knee and the full weight of his body on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. The country, and even the world, bore witness to the moments leading up to the lynching of an unarmed black man. I'll never forget sitting on my bed and clicking on one of the most dehumanizing videos I had ever seen. I was scrolling through social media and I just kept on seeing like people were just you know, had his names pop up, his name was pop up here and there. And, you know, I saw videos and I, I read a little bit about it and then I clicked it and I remember watching it and just feeling like I was having an out-of-body experience and time kind of stopped in this weird, dark place. It, it was something that felt really unreal and sad. I was at home when I first saw the video of George Floyd being murdered. I did choose to watch it. If I'm not aware of what's going on, then it's impossible for me to correct that misinformation. I was at home working when I first found out about what happened to George Floyd. I couldn't watch the footage in its entirety at the time. I still struggle to watch even portions of it. It makes me extremely uncomfortable just to see someone put in that kind of position where they're fully aware that they're being killed in public in front of many people with no mercy or feeling of any kind from the police surrounding them. So my initial reaction watching that that Black King get murdered. And the reason why I say King is because there was a very loud campaign to dehumanizing his death and dehumanizing everything that led up to that moment, the whole nine minutes of it. That's why I call him a king, because he wasn't given his right to defend himself 
felt like it was just so unreal. And I kept saying, and I kept in my head, like, they're going to pull him off. They're going to pull him off. And, you know, just hearing his cries and just, I don't know how people after that just kept on coming these racist comments about him and demeaning him and not even acknowledge that he, that he was murdered. He didn't even get a chance in his day in court, which he, he didn't get a chance. It, I I just kept thinking, like, we, we can't be saying we're some well-off great society. And we can't even objectively look at that and say this should not have happened. There shouldn't have been a debate. There shouldn't have been a debate at all. My initial reaction to the George Floyd murder was indignation, anger, frustration. This happens all the time, and every time it happens again, you're appalled. We live in this constant kind of in-between state of existing in America while also living in fear of being killed or maimed or jailed unjustly without any justice or protection. And so when we watch these videos, I always understand that this is a very real reality that can happen to me. People watched and in broad daylight, this cop murdered George Floyd. And it's it's awful. It's terrible. My reaction was just, I was so frustrated. I was shocked and numb initially. And in the days and weeks that followed, just struggling to understand how something like this could have happened. I honestly had a lot of trouble talking about it to anyone, whether it was online or in person. The summer of 2020 was defined by marches and protests that arose out of the Black Lives Matter movement. Several years earlier, the movement had arisen from the killings of unarmed Black people. The movement garnered attention, but the initial response was polarizing. In 2020, however, a string of murders in relatively quick succession forced people to reconsider their understanding of BLM and race in America. I felt proud that people were protesting. Yes, it needed to happen. And I felt like George Floyd was a catalyst to a volcano that was brewing within the Black community because this was not the first time that we saw another Black person lose their life to police brutality. It's not new. It was just a tipping point. Black Lives Matter started before George Floyd. And it was amplified by George Floyd. They gave me a, a voice of how I felt. I feel like they really did. They gave me a voice. I was overwhelmed with the amount of support that the Black community experienced at that time. I really honestly feel as though this is our civil rights movement. This was a widespread movement that's still going on today that is pushing for a new wave of reform, a new wave of protection for not just Black people, but for all people of color. I did participate. I went to two protests, one in Oakland and another one in San Jose. And I deeply was touched when I was there. There were people of all faiths, all walks of life, all races, all sexual orientations standing with us, marching with us, 
braving further police brutality. It was like nothing I had experienced before. There were many moments where I was afraid. I saw many instances of people being locked up, taken away, people being harassed, people being pepper sprayed, tear gassed, dispersed. It was it was scary, but I knew that we all were a part of something that was beyond just our individual selves. I felt uplifted by it. I felt supported and I felt powerful. I was surprised by the outpouring of support from people across the U.S., given that I'd seen similar incidents get swept under the rug in the past, comparatively. I was honestly most taken aback, though, by the antagonistic response to the movement for accountability and justice. I didn't participate in the protests because I felt that suddenly deciding to protest when I hadn't taken significant action in the past would have been pretty performative. Let's remember to say their names. Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and countless others. During all of 2020, hate crimes towards Asians were escalating. Storefronts and businesses smeared with feces, racial slurs, physical attacks, even murder. Then the now ex-president decided to scapegoat an entire people for COVID. Chinese virus. There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? Because it comes say from it's China. Racist. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. That's why. It comes from China. I want to be accurate. And they didn't have to be of Chinese descent. Trump ushered in a new era of yellow peril that targeted anyone who looked East Asian. These were the kind of encounters Asians, Pacific Islanders, and South Asians were not unfamiliar with, but were starting to experience more frequently. While it's easy to describe an Asian woman getting slashed across the face, there were so many other hate crimes not being talked about, experiences that can't be condensed into a single soundbite or video. While some were shocked to read about this on Twitter or Facebook, many of us we're not surprised. I've only experienced casual comments here and there as far as direct experience, but I've been pretty aware of it and the escalation over the past year because I largely saw it coming. The rise in anti-Asian sentiment over the past year parallels the rise in what you would call anti-Brown sentiment after 9-11. Many people who I'm in regular contact with also have been affected by this, including but not limited to verbal harassment, car damages, and hostile work environments. I was aware of the anti-Asian hate crimes due to my significant other just telling me about them. He would show me what he saw on the news and I felt really, I felt really appalled and I felt really hurt that this was happening. And I also felt really angry because I felt like we, we explained that this was gonna happen as soon as our ex-president called it the China virus. And it did affect the people that I knew. Like a lot of my Asian friends did not feel comfortable in their own communities. We wanted to take a moment to just be honest with y'all. As we were writing this section of the episode, our team felt at a loss of how to talk about the Atlanta shootings. The media immediately attempted to humanize the killer's whiteness, creating a narrative that the killer committed his acts of violence against the Asian women for reasons other than race. People took these sound bites and used them to silent Asian women's voices 
even further by accepting the killer's reasoning that the Atlanta shootings weren't a hate crime. While people were mourning the deaths of Asian women in the communities, police captain Jay Baker made a public statement that the killer had a, quote, very bad day, a characterization that drives home how little Asian women's lives are valued. We will explore the Atlanta shootings in more detail in a fully dedicated episode. But for now, let's listen to one of our writers, Calix Vubui, share her reaction to when she learned about the Atlanta shootings. Hi, this is Calix, and I'm an Asian woman, a Vietnamese-American woman. When the story broke, I was in a deep, deep state of rage. A white man had murdered six Asian women, and the media was refusing to acknowledge that the women were Asian and that this was a hate crime. But the thing that undid me wasn't the media. I knew they were going to gaslight Asian women. What hurt the most was that in the aftermath of a white man hunting down and murdering Asian women, white people, white friends of mine, they were silent. The same people who had marched in the streets after George Floyd was murdered, claiming to be our allies, you know, they heard about this hate crime and they were posting pictures of their dogs and what they ate for lunch on their social media. That is what, that's what violence feels like. Total disregard. I felt the silence of white people and frankly, the silence of men. It was so loud. I felt the harm. And where were Asian men? Where were the white male partners of so many Asian women? Where were they? The silence of it all. It made me feel worthless. And you know, that's the thing. That's a bigger tragedy, right? Like the invisibility of being an Asian woman. Our lived experiences is that we only have value when you're being sexualized. And if you're not being sexualized, no one has time for you. Not even when you're murdered. Honestly, what I remember about my reaction, I wasn't shocked because America and gun violence, right? I mean, how many times have we heard about mass shootings at this point? There have been so many in my lifetime. Then I saw people talking about how many of the victims were Asian women. And I just remember saying to myself, like, oh, so it's come to this now. Like, the the anti-Asian violence has now escalated to the point that we're having mass shootings. I think the gravity of the situation really sat in for me, though, when I saw an article about how one of the victim's sons found out about his mother's death while playing League of Legends. Like, for some reason, that really made me get it. Just imagine doing your everyday personal routine and then you get some of the worst news of your life. I was in my garage working out when this happened and I can still remember the song that was playing at the time. It, it ends with the line, crying in deep red. And, and that stuck with me so much. Just that morning, I remember I revisited the debate topic of worsening anti-Asian sentiment rising in the U.S. with there still being some who questioned whether or not it would actually amount to anything. I, I generally don't really 
like leaving discussions like that with negative sentiment. But I remember just being frustrated and saying that people would regret not taking things more seriously. And that kind of ominous feeling just lingered throughout the day. And come that evening, I felt initially that the headline had to be fake. It, it, it couldn't have happened. But within minutes, cold numbness set in. And I was really hurt and angry, obviously. But I had been hurt and angry already for for over a year and and for long portions of my life. I was tired and I was sad that I'd been proven right. The 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 lyrics in the song just kept echoing in my head that night as I, I tried to find out more about the incident. And I I wanted so much for for there to be a way to undo things, even though obviously I, I knew that wasn't possible. I I just kept kind of panicking and going back to the, the thought that this couldn't be real. In the time since then, I've come to realize that this is a feeling and burden most of my fellow brothers and sisters in band have to carry every single day. Uh, the majority of my life, I had been blind to this kind of pain, at least to this kind of magnitude, because I was honestly pretty lucky and pretty ignorant. Let's take a moment and remember the names of the women that we lost at the Atlanta shooting. Sung Chung Park. Hyung Chung Grant. Sun Cha Kim. Young A Yu. Xiao Jie Tan. Dao Yo Feng. Media coverage on these events has largely focused on the most sensational aspects of anti-Asian hate. Though these stories are effective in getting the attention of the masses, they can work as a double-edged sword. Although the attention is warranted, the majority of hate crimes, harassment, vandalism, racial slurs, get brushed to the side. These types of incidences act as a catalyst to more violent hate crimes. Hyper-focusing on the more violent instances of hate can lead to misrepresentation of what's truly going on. I felt like the media did what it does best by sensationalizing and pushing an anti-Black agenda. All I got to say is that we know who owns our major media platforms. I'm talking about the CEO. They are not people of color, which is why we have the problems that we have today. So I don't feel like these coverages that the media did was truly objective. Those news sources that grad from anti-Black platforms, it really makes you look down on them. Race is only important when the perpetrators of crime are people of color. And specifically, I say this because if the person who perpetrates any crime in America is a person of color, their race can be used as reasoning for why that person committed that crime. Every person who is a minority group in the United States is an ambassador and a representative of their entire race to the white population. It was what I expected, honestly. There was very little to start and then a large rise in media coverage only after it started being tied to either political accountability or posing a risk as far as people getting found out. I'm somewhat appreciative of the fact that these hate crimes are actually getting attention now, but I think they're actually used to push various different social and political narratives, and that they're also implying via the sudden rise in media coverage that these hate crimes are a new thing, and they aren't. 
The sensationalist nature of media coverage for any sort of topic means that it's very difficult for most people to realize how deeply rooted a lot of these issues are. Anti-Asian hate crimes are not new. In general, hate crimes in the U.S. are not new. People are craving connection, but we're living in times of profound isolation, while people of color are also dealing with the trauma of watching videos of people who look like them getting harassed, attacked, and murdered. Spaces where people can discuss and think about these problems together are rare. Band serves as a collective for people of different backgrounds to hear each other out while doing the difficult work of building a new community of unity. But let's first ask a basic question. Why is there a need for Black and Asian solidarity? Well, Black and Asian Alliance is important because we have to build a narrative that is counter to that media footage that we were just talking about. Because so many people will use one or two or a few stories to create the idea that it is this way, that Black people hate Asian people, that historically we've never gotten along, completely leaving out instances of solidarity and replacing them or and hyper-focusing on the times when Black people and Asian people didn't get along. So it's important to have this alliance and this solidarity so that we can have examples to show people that Black people are showing up for Asian people and vice versa. How could it not be important? There's so much to say about this topic, but at the very least, it can be summed up as crucial to the Black and Asian communities. Both have had different, very different historical journeys in the U.S. and abroad, but there are many commonalities in their experience as well. Both groups are treated as monoliths, where everyone is assumed to look and act the same way. Both groups have faced extensive mistreatment and persecution in the U.S. and abroad, and both groups are still fighting in the modern day for fair and equal treatment. A Black and Asian alliance is so important because isolated communities are the easiest to disenfranchise, and we need all the help we can get from each other in order to make a better society. With a group size of almost 8,000 members at the time of recording this episode, it is evident that the core tenets of BAN resonate with many people. I joined BAN back in March. I, like many others, felt compelled to no longer be on the sidelines about race in this country. I was looking to deepen my roots in the Asian community while also taking part in the BLM movement in Oakland. What I found online was a series of anti-Black and Asian sentiments that deeply troubled me. I knew that there were more bridges and barriers out there. One day, I put in some combination of Black-Asian unity in the search bar and found BAN. And in one day of being part of this group, the gaping hole in my heart was healed. The timing and motivation for people joining BAN varies, but have striking similarities. Oh, I joined band back in February. And why I joined band is I saw a lot of disconnect between our two communities over recent like Asian hate crimes that were going on. I, I saw there wasn't a connect and I was looking for that. And then I like stumbled upon band like it wasn't even invited. I was just <laughs> I was just lurking because I was like, there's got to be something else. I was invited to join the Black an Asian Alliance network through another group on Facebook that I moderate. And I joined it because I immediately saw the value and potential of a group that encourages unity and the proliferation of 
civil rights for all people and people working in tandem from different ethnic groups and racial groups towards that goal. We are human just like everyone else. We have much more in common than we do that is different and that we can share and share our cultures and work together to achieve our goals as minorities in America. The Black and Asian Alliance Network really promotes that concept of unity. In the last year, BAN has made a significant impact on the lives of thousands of members. But Jonathan Gibbs isn't content with just having a large online presence. What does the future look like for BAN as it continues to grow? BAN is also an ideology, an ideal, an idea. Ultimately, it's great to have online conversations, but after this pandemic subsides and we figure out what the new normal is, once we're able to get back together and folks are vaccinated, I would like to see an in-person gathering, a festival of sorts, a sharing of cultures, a get-together. And I would want that to be replicated across all regions for all members, whether it's the Bay Area, the Midwest, the Southwest, internationally. Some of our listeners may not know this, but BAN is 100% voluntary. A lot of time and energy has been put into this group. What makes it worth it? It's very interesting, but it's very exciting. It's a very grassroots type of thing. And so the more that we can see each other, hear each other, and the more energy that we can put into that mutual aid and love, while ignoring the trolls and the infiltrators and the and the stories that continually tell us that we should hate each other, getting past that noise and keeping our eye on the prize and keeping our eye on the main vision, that'll keep us working because it's something that's in our heart. It's something that we align with regardless of our background. And it's something that we want to see through. Ban is an ideology, an idea, and an ideal of exploring the world through two communities growing together. By extension, we the many are here to give voice to the Black and Asian communities around the world by showcasing unique perspectives around shared experiences and events. Sometimes this will garnish deep reflective conversations or contentious debates, but more often than not, we will see how similar we may experience the same events. The topics covered in this episode were only sound bites. This podcast will carve out a space for the stories of our Black and Asian sisters and brothers to breathe. Please join us for future episodes of We The Many as we explore our reality through a new lens. Make sure to subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review. Also, check out Ban on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can see the links in our show notes. We'll see you next time. I'm your host, Ima Sandu, and you can find me at Ima Sandu on Facebook or TikTok. Special shout out and thank you to the team behind We The Many, to our editor, Lance John, and to the production team of Alexander Shea and Bernadette Benjamin. Also to the writing team of Adrian Williams, Calix Fubui, and Ima Sandu. We'll see you next time. <laughs>